RPYA family, how y'all doing? Man, it is so great to see all your lovely faces again this week. Uh, my name is Kelly McCoy. If this is your first time, we're so glad you're here. In fact, if this is your first time, we want to connect with you. So go ahead and fill out one of these connection cards if you haven't done so already, so that we can keep you up to date on what God is doing here, and we want to invite you to be a part of that. Does that sound cool? Um, this week, um, I mean, I'm just going to take a just a hard dive, like depressing note, real quick. Um, it's been seven days since tragedy hit um, California or since hit um, Las Vegas, and I've been hashtag praying for Vegas all week long. And I want to give us an opportunity to pray for Vegas right now in this service. And I know that there might be some people in your lives that have been affected by this tragedy. Or maybe there's somebody that you know, or maybe you yourself were affected by this tragedy. And so, if you have been affected, I, we want to pray for the, your loved ones. What I just, want, I just want to know by a show of hands, if you know anybody who's been affected, or, yeah, okay, so plenty of us. All right, great. So, what we're going to do, I'm just going to pray for those family members, and I want to remind you that there's a prayer corner right here. And after the service, or during the last worship set, there's going to be a prayer, there's going to be prayer partners there to pray with you specifically for the burden that you're carrying, or even the burden that they're carrying. Does that sound good tonight? So let me pray. Father, thank you um, that you're still good regardless how bad people behave. That in spite of suffering, we can surrender our lives and our will to you, and you still give us hope. Father, thank you uh, and for protecting us, but we ask that that protective uh, presence in our lives would extend to those around us and those who have been affected by the tragedy that has happened in Las Vegas. We pray that you would, cap- we, that you would catch every tear that falls out of these eyes of the people that we love, and that you would reveal yourself in a very true and real way, even right now as we present these people to you. Lord, we love you and we love them. In Jesus' name we all said, amen, amen. Cool. Um, That's not it. That's not all we're going to do. We're going to continue to pray for Vegas, but we're also going to hold a very special uh, conversation. I would probably say conversation. We're going to respond by giving you tools, giving you information on how God is still wildly present in the midst of this evil tragedy. And that's going to happen October 29th. Maybe you saw some of that information in your newsletter or even on Instagram or Facebook, but you'll stay tuned for more information on that. Keep in mind the prayer corner will be open. Also, also Audrey Moorhead, she's awesome. She's in charge of the prayer corner. I don't know. Where's Audrey? She's standing up here. There she is. Go stand up. I want people to see your beautiful face. That's Audrey. All right. She makes sure that there are people praying for these seats so that the seat that you're actually sitting in today, that it has been prayed for and that God has a special word for whoever sits in those seats. So keep in mind that tonight, God is going to speak because the, God's word never returns void. Literally, somebody can come up here, read a Bible verse and leave and your life would be transformed. That's how powerful God's word is. And so we expect... God's presence to move in a wildly crazy way that would possibly transform you from from today for the for the rest of eternity. So keep that in mind as today when you hear God's word. 
Tonight, we're going to continue in a series called, oh, it's not on the screens, but it's called Welcome Home, as you saw in the bumper video before. Welcome Home, because home is not necessarily where the heart is. Home is where? The Father is. That's right. Home is where the Father is. And the Father is seeking out sons and daughters, not, you know, soldiers and slaves. He's seeking out sons and daughters, and he won't stop until you or your family or your friends are a part of his home. All right? And so to continue in this discussion, I've invited somebody very, very special to me and possibly very special to you. He has been serving at Rocky Peak right after Moses freed the Egyptians, like, he was like, you know, I don't know, he was, I don't know, uh, Jesus' youth pastor, I don't know, but, but this man, he, you know, he deserves a lot of love and encouragement, and this is our home, so we want to be very hospitable and very encouraging as we welcome this person up. Please help me welcome up Pastor Andreas Correas. Thank you. Thanks, man. Appreciate that. Thanks, brother. Hey, Rocky Peak Young Adults, how are we doing this Sunday night? Hey, it is good to be with you. Like Kelly said, my name is Dre. I have been on staff for a long, long time. I've been on staff here for over 15 years. And if you're looking at me going, you still look really good at Spanish jeans. I was blessed that way. Um, I'm one of our teaching pastors here at Rocky Peak, which means more often than not, you're going to find me over in uh, the weekend services. But this is always such a privilege to me. Every so often when I get to come and hang out with the young adults here at Rocky Peak, it's such a filling time. I hope you get as much out of it as I get it tonight. So I'm going to start things off the only way I know how to start a message off by praying and going to the Lord because he's the one that guides this time. So if you would pray with me right now. Father, we just want to thank you for what you're doing, Jesus. And as I look around this room, one of the things that I love is I love the beautiful diversity you're bringing to this Rocky Peak Young Adult Ministry. Father, there are different types of people here, different ages, different interests, different backgrounds, different strengths, different hurts, different stories, different races, different genders. But we're all here because of the same Jesus. The one and only Jesus that saves us from our captivity of sin. The one and only Jesus that restores us and gives us a brand new life. We may not know the people around us, but we know the Jesus that gave all of us life. And that makes us all family. And so we thank you for that. We thank you for Kelly's admonishing. We are family here. And we don't just say that as lip service because you're supposed to at church. We say that because we believe it. We see all throughout scripture, you unifying a diverse group of people that would only come together under the power of Jesus. And so tonight as we open up your word, Jesus, I often pray, let me as the communicator become much, much less. Let you as our precious Lord, our King, become so much more this evening. In your son's name, all the God's people said... Amen. Well, as we kick things off, you've got a message note sheet there with you. That's a great tool to help you follow along. There's a couple blanks. Also, it's an opportunity to jot down anything the Holy Spirit is prompting you to remember. When Kelly asked me to come and fill in this evening, I was really excited when he, filled, when he explained to me what the series is in. If you're brand new, again, welcome, and let me take a few moments to bring you up to speed. A few weeks ago, Rocky Peak Young Adults kicked off a series called Welcome Home, and you heard Kelly just talk about it, and I love that tagline in the heart, that home isn't necessarily where the heart is, but home definitely is where the Father is. Another way of saying that is home, meaning where you and I 
where we belong, where we find meaning, where we find identity, that is where the presence of God is. And over the last several weeks, Kelly himself, Chris Waz, Andy Otis, they've been back here to talk about what does it look like as a people who have lost their way to find their way back home. And not only that, but what does it look like to live in home in the presence of God the Father? And so tonight, as I continue that theme, the title of the message is on your note sheets, but it's not just the title, it's the core takeaway I want you to walk out of here is that's this. Repentance is the road home. If we want to go back home to experience the presence of God the Father, the road home is repentance. That is the highway back to God. Now, as I say this at the top, I need to address the elephant in the room. And that's for many of us. Whether you've grown up in church or not, there is a massive confusion over that word and over that concept, repentance. Now, I don't need you, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but just think about it. If you were to define what that means in non-religious terms and normal people terms, could you do that? It's kind of interesting, isn't it? Because repentance feels like one of those topics where we feel like we should know the answer, right? We sit there and go, we raise our hand before we realize, I have no idea what to say on this message. And for a lot of us, it brings a source of confusion. And what can happen when we lack clarity is that we minimize truth, meaning we miss a big picture. And when we minimize truth, when we see a smaller picture than what God intended, then what happens is that can lead to danger. Let me illustrate this because I'm a fallen human being, so let's talk about my stupidity. So I've often said in the adult service that I'm a recovering narcissist because pride has been such a recurring issue in my life. And one way that pride led me to minimize a truth and not see a bigger picture was several years ago. See, a friend of mine was living in Oklahoma, Tulsa, Oklahoma to be exact. And what I did was I flew out to be with him and we were driving home. So it was the end of his college year, it was about the end of May, and we made the drive from Tulsa back to the Los Angeles area. And we were getting ready to leave. This was a Friday night about 11 p.m., midnight, early Saturday morning. And as we were leaving, one of his roommates, one of his roommates said, hey, you guys be careful as you're driving. There's a tornado warning going on. So let me stop here and add context years later, future Dre talking here. I grew up in Southern California, as many of you have. Out of curiosity, is there anybody here that has lived in a state other than California, Midwest or the East Coast, anything like that? Where where have you lived? Texas. Where are you? Texas. So let me talk about something. What I have learned compared to Texas, Texas, Texas. What I have learned being a kid that grew up in Southern California, is that what I call rain is radically different from what the rest of the country calls rain. Because for those of us that have grown up in California, it barely sprinkles and we lose our friggin' minds. We don't know how to drive. We think the sky is broken. Other states laugh at us. So to me, I thought what rain was here was true everywhere else. So I had a Midwesterner tell us there is a tornado warning. Be careful. And in my prideful SoCal mind, I scoffed at it. I didn't insult him to his face, but I did it in my head. (laughs) And here's literally what I was thinking. I've seen movies. (laughs) Tornadoes are big. I'm going to see it. You just don't drive towards it. Duh. Here's the other thing. 
When he told us this, I looked up in the sky. It was a clear sky. If you live in California, clouds take hours to move in. We have very lazy clouds out here in Southern California. My Texas friends and everybody else can tell you, anywhere else, man, it happens like that. And so I sat there and went, we don't need this. And my confusion proved to be naivety, which led to pride. And I minimized the big truth. And so what happens is we took off driving. And again, what I learned about storms in the Midwest is they happen quick and they happen hard. So within the first hour that we were driving, all of a sudden these beautiful clear skies clouded up very quick. All of a sudden on the side, I, for me and for some of you, this is completely normal, but I saw the gnarliest thunder and lightning spectacle I ever have. It was like being in a war. And I remember looking at that and looking where the freeway was going, going, that's where we're heading. <laughs> without warning, which since then I've been on the East Coast many times, and it's so annoying that it happens without warning, it didn't just California drizzle. It was a torrential downpour that just came out. Mind you, this is the end of May. This is summertime and heat thing. And then within 10 minutes of this torrential downpour, the downpour turned into hail. Not just like itty-bitty, like Chick-fil-A ice, but we're talking like monstrous, I can't see what's going on anymore. And so finally, my friend and I pulled over to the side of this road. We can't see anything around the car but this storm. And I sat there with him wondering, what else don't we know about the world? And so what's my point in this story? My point is that my lack of clarity led me to minimize truth. My lack of clarity led me to minimize truth. And the reason why I share that is that's my point when it comes to the biblical concept of repentance. What has happened is that so many of us have adopted a definition that is based on a sliver of information. If you join us during our weekend service, we're going through a service, a series called Unfiltered, where we're trying to see the gospel of Matthew as the original audience would have seen. And Pastor Michael keeps saying, we're trying to take filters off of it. And so for many of us, we have filtered repentance to be something much smaller than it is. And so a common misunderstanding is that two things happen. One, when it comes to repentance, we see it as a completely shameful, vengeful, bitter act. Repentance is a finger wagging in our face, telling us you are awful. You are missing the mark. How dare you? You are a horrible Christian. You are a horrible human being. And for us, when that becomes our adoption of what repentance is, then it leads to a second confusion that we don't apply repentance in our lives. Because truthfully, fair question, many of us going, why do I need God to constantly remind me that I suck? Because my own head does that. Other people around me do that. And so what happens is we abandon, as Christ followers, the beauty and this concept of repentance. We kind of hope we skip over those verses or we don't want to talk about it because it seems guilt and shameful, and the way I put it, it seems stereotypically religious. And here I am, standing before you saying that if we want to go home to the Father, repentance is the way home. And so what that means is that we need to understand a new view of repentance. What that means, again, as we've been talking in the weekend service, is we need to go to Scripture, which is our authority, and we need to remove filters. 
And we need to understand what was repentance that the Old Testament, what was repentance in the context that Jesus talked about it. And when we look at scriptures, we see that the repentance Jesus taught was a beautiful, life-giving act because it led us home. And so what I want to do this evening is I want to take us on a journey through a few scriptures in the New Testament so that we take our filters off and understand what does the Bible mean by repentance and then how does that lead us back to the presence of the Father. So there in your note sheet, what I want to do is I want to start with two similar scriptures, both from the Gospel of Matthew. So if you look at your note sheet, what you have first is Matthew chapter 3. So we have John the Baptist, who was the prophet that came to announce that that the Messiah was coming, that we need to get ready because the time of the Messiah was here. And as John preached, as we're introduced to him in Matthew's gospel, this is what it says. In those days, John the Baptist preached in the wilderness of Judea and saying, repent. Would you underline or highlight that word? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And then if you look at the scripture under it, we go to Matthew chapter 4. Now Jesus has come on the scene. Jesus has revealed himself to be the Messiah who we've been waiting for. And before this, Jesus has gone through his temptation, has gone through his preparation. And now in Matthew chapter 4, 17, Jesus is going to preach for the first time that we have recorded. And look at his message. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent. Underline that, highlight that. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. So two very similar scriptures, aren't they? And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at three quick things through these scriptures that give us a new foundation for what repentance is in the biblical state. So here's the first thing I want to highlight. Notice that the ministry of Jesus, both through John the Baptist, which I've often called the opening act to the main event that is Jesus, and the preaching ministry of Jesus himself, both began with a call to repentance. Jesus opened his mouth, in a sense, for the first time, and the first thing he wanted us to know was that repentance is the way home. So we see an importance And one thing contextually that we also see is that John the Baptist and Jesus were talking to a first century Jewish audience. And it's likely that a majority of that audience understood that this message wasn't something that they just pulled out of nowhere or was unique to them. This was the message of the Jewish Holy Scriptures, the Old Testament. When you look at the prophets, their message over and over again was repent. And so the first thing we notice just through these few scriptures is that repentance is of the utmost priority in God's eyes. So the second thing we learn from this passage is what does repentance mean? See, one thing we need to keep in mind, and I'm going to refer to over and over again throughout this teaching, is that scripture is for us. Scripture is relevant to us, but we were not the original audience of scripture. Meaning that this first century Jewish audience in the New Testament was a different culture, a different world, and particularly a different language. And so to really understand what these words mean, we need to take a step back and go, what's the context behind this to a first century audience? And so that's where repentance comes in. So the New Testament was written in Greek. And so what we've translated are Greek words and Greek sayings. And so this word in these passages used for repentance is the Greek word called metanoeo. Now the definition of metanoeo is literally to change 
directions. In fact, let me give you a textbook definition of it. Of this word, repentance means to change, to change, uh, to change one's life based on a complete change of attitude and thought concerning sin and righteousness, which is a fancy biblical way of saying the pursuit of Jesus. And so repentance, notice something that's missing from this definition that's often part of our stereotype, guilt. For many of us, when we think of repentance, we think of that finger wagging in our face telling us, you are horrible, you have missed the mark. Now, repentance does involve an acknowledgement of our sin, and we'll talk about that later, but do you notice that the definition is built on transformation rather than guilt? That repentance is an opportunity for Jesus to come into our lives and to completely change us. See, as Christ followers, one thing we need to understand is when we give our lives to Jesus, he doesn't make us slightly better. When I gave my life to Jesus when I was 15 years old, he didn't come into my life just to make me slightly better. Oh, you're kind of like a better version of Dre. You curse less and you want to go to church a little bit more. Well and good. What Jesus does is he comes into our life and he now gives us the power to completely turn around. So we were on the wrong road and now repentance puts us on the road back home. One of the stereotypes of religion is that religion is built on guilt. In fact, one of my favorite shows is a show called 30 Rock with uh, Tina Fey and Alec Baldwin. Have you ever watched 30 Rock? It's now on Hulu, for those of you wondering where it went. And one of my favorite things about Alec Baldwin's character, he's the network executive character, they did an episode once where they were talking about religion, and he was describing his relationship with God. And I quote, he said that there is always a crushing guilt. Whether things are good or bad, or you're simply eating tacos in the park, there is always the crushing guilt. And for so many of us, the stereotype of God and repentance is this crushing guilt. But by the definition of the word used, it has nothing to do with guilt. It has everything to do with freedom. The repentance that God offers is one that leads us to a life of freedom. And the third thing we learn through these passages is that both of them say that the kingdom of heaven is near. So what does that mean for us? Where is home? The presence of God. Where does he live? His kingdom that he establishes. Therefore, that is our home. And again, when we look at the Greek word, this word near is talking about the future, but it's also talking about the present. Another way of saying this is the kingdom of heaven is here. And if you want to experience the presence of God now, the Christian life is not about twiddling your thumbs, waiting for God to come back on a cloud in some future. He will come back, but the Christian life is about experiencing the presence of God now. And if you want to experience that now, it happens through repentance. And so now that we have these fundamentals of what repentance truly means, what I want to do as we continue our journey is I want to show you this repentance. What does it mean that God forgives us, that God turns our lives around and puts us on the highway home? What does this look like in action? And so I want to lead you through an account of the life of Jesus. If you've got your Bibles, open them up. If you've got your apps, which we talk about often at Rocky Peak, there's a lot of great free apps. Version app is one that we often recommend. Um, I'm going to be in the Gospel of John chapter 8. If you're newer to your Bible, or even if you've grown up in this, never feel ashamed to use something like the table of contents. Those tools are there to be able to help us find where we're going. So second half of our Bible, we call that the New Testament. We're going to be in John chapter 8, and we're going to start right at verse 2. Now, as you're turning there, 
as a teacher of the word, one thing I got to do before we go into our passage is I got to address one of the notes that's there. If you look at your Bibles, do most of your Bibles say something like the earliest manuscripts don't contain this? Do some of your Bibles have the next like 10, 11 verses italicized or something to mark that this is different? And so I'd be doing us a disservice if I just continued reading and not addressed what that is. And so we're going to put on our academic hats a little bit here, and we're going to talk a little bit about the composition of the Bible. So here's what is meant by this. The earliest manuscripts that we have of the Gospel of John, and we have some very, very early manuscripts of John's Gospel in particular, do not contain the following 10 verses. So the fair question comes up, is this something that we can trust? And so there's a big world of archaeological, philosophical scholarship that looks at manuscripts, looks at church traditions, that helps us understand, can we, can we accept this section? And so the majority of scholarship, not all of it, but the majority of scholarship would say two unique things. They would first say, yes, this is an event that happened in the life of Jesus. This is consistent with who Jesus is. This is consistent with traditions that the early church taught about. This is consistent with the radicalness of Jesus because as you're going to see how it deals with sexuality, how it deals with the role of women, this is an event that happened in the life of Jesus. Now, the majority of scholarship would also agree on a second point. We're pretty sure that John himself didn't write this. And so why is it in the Gospel of John? Each of the Gospels has a theme or has an aim, and usually that revolves around its audience. So for example, the book of Matthew was originally written to a primarily Jewish audience. And so in Matthew's Gospel, you hear Matthew often making a case for Jesus being the promised Messiah. Matthew starts with a genealogy that ties him to the Jewish leaders of the past. Matthew refers often to Jewish law and Jewish tradition without giving an explanation of that. Then you look at a gospel like Luke, which was written by a non-Jew, a Gentile, to a Gentile audience, and it doesn't have any of that Jewish tradition. His was talking to the Gentile world about who Jesus is, what it is, and so on and so on. So it's widely believed that Mark or Luke wrote this account, but the reason why it was put in the gospel of John is that it fit well in John's aim. It fit well that John often hit the philosophy of the message of Jesus, and one of those was the role of women and the role of repentance, and we see that Jesus has a high view of women, which was very contrary to the culture at the time. We can take our academic hats off now. That was a little bit of context, but again, I feel like I would do a disservice if I don't hit it. So all that to say, I'm very secure in teaching this passage. So as we go in, let's start at verse 2. At dawn, Jesus appeared in the temple courts, while all the people gathered around him and sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees. Now, the teachers of the law referred to the scribes, who were scholars of their time. The Pharisees referred to religious leaders. I often like to clump them together and refer to them as the religious establishment of the time. Think of like religious politicians, if you will. So the teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. Would you underline that? Caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? Verse 6, they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. Okay, let's stop right there. 
As we have to do any time we open up the Bible, context is king. And so what we need to do first is we need to remove our filters and look at what's happening through the lens of first century Judaism. So the first thing we're told, Jesus went to the temple courts and taught at dawn. That was a very common act for a teacher of the law. It was a very common thing for people to gather at the temple courts and for teachers to come and teach them throughout the day. When Jesus was in Jerusalem, that was something, because he is a rabbi, something he naturally did often to go and be with the public. And so what we have here is the religious establishment. Again, keep that in mind because that's important. So they bring this woman, and you got to understand the context. This woman was literally caught in the act. So she was dragged out of bed. She is in a state of dishevelment, probably in a state of undress at some point. She is brought before Jesus and they say, this woman was caught in adultery. The Greek context is they are making a legal charge. They are not simply stating something. They're basically reading her right. She has broken the law. Now, we know that this is a plot by the Pharisees, the religious leaders, because they've thought this through. They have calculated this because of what they say next. The law of Moses. Now understand what they've accused her of. See, at this point, the religious leaders had a lot of what was called oral or man-made laws. Had a lot of man-made traditions that didn't have their root in scripture. But it was their own wisdom, so they weighted it as much, if not more, than scripture. And so what they are being very clear about is they're saying she is not guilty of breaking our law. She is not guilty of breaking our tradition. She is guilty of breaking scripture's law, the law of Moses. And here's an important thing you need to understand. They are 100% right. She broke the law of the Old Testament. And so contextually, when God called Israel to be a nation, Deuteronomy, Leviticus, these Old Testament books, they give guidelines to this nation, to this theocracy, if you will, of how to live because they didn't have a frame of reference. And what we see in God's, uh, in God's heart from the very beginning is that God held a high view of marriage. God held a very high view of what we call purity. Often we talk about purity just in the sense of lust or porn or something like that, but purity is anything that would break the covenant of marriage. And so in the books of Deuteronomy, in the book of Leviticus, what we see is that anything that would break those bonds of marriage, adultery, that would defile that, the penalty was death. Now, for some of us, we sit there and go, well, that sounds kind of harsh, but the reality is the penalty for any type of sin is death and separation from God. However, because that was such a severe penalty, what the Old Testament does as well is that it lays out guidelines so you can't make false accusations. So to protect people. So what it required is if you were going to make this accusation, this could be penalized in death, you needed to have two witnesses. And it goes into detail that you didn't just need to have two witnesses, but their story had to be airtight, meaning they literally had to catch the people in bed together with unmistakable movements, with clear IDs, and again, there needed to be two of them. And the reason why that was given in the laws of Moses, one of the biggest reasons was actually to protect women, because God are shady by nature. And the thought would be that suspicious husbands or jealous boyfriends would make false accusations towards women. And so in a sense, the penalty is death, but it was also created to make it hard to prove, at least to that extent. 
And so what had happened here was they had set this woman up. We don't know the details. We don't know how long this affair had been gotting, but they got her. She was committing adultery. She is guilty. They had the witnesses. They literally dragged her out. And so what they are doing is they are ignoring the heart of God's word. See, the laws of the Old Testament were meant for restoration. Were meant for God to make us brand new. What they're doing here is completely about politics and power. See, the religious establishment viewed Jesus as a threat. Jesus was this hot new teacher who people were flocking towards, who was teaching about a radically different God, a radically different way, who was teaching that you didn't need these Pharisees and these scribes as much as they told you you did. And so often their, their power struggle with Jesus was we don't want to lose our power. We don't want to lose our seat at the table. And so that's why they kept trying to trap Jesus. This is not the first time nor the last time. In the gospel accounts, it says that they tried to trap Jesus. And if you think about it, this is a pretty good trap. Because to them, this is going to go one of two ways. Either Jesus is going to say, no, she's not guilty. And they can go to the crowds and go, this teacher does not respect the scriptures. He does not respect the law of Moses. How could we possibly take him seriously? Or he is going to say, yes, she's guilty. She deserves death. And they can go to the Roman officials because they knew they didn't have the power to carry out an execution. Only Rome could. So they could go to the Roman officials and go, hey, this upstart teacher is trying to get people executed without your permission. Go and get him. It's a pretty good plan, right? But here's again what's so heartbreaking about this. They cared so much about their pride and their power, they were willing to destroy this woman's life to get there. Because do you notice something key is missing in this scenario? Where's the guy? Because the law of Moses did not specifically single out women. It singled out both parties. And one thing that's been so sinful throughout all of human history is that, guys, we often make women carry our burdens when it comes to sexual sin. And so here she is. This guy is as guilty and as deserving of this penalty, and he's somewhere scot-free. And what we see there is that it has nothing to do with restoration. It has nothing to do with healing this woman. It has only to do with their pride. Now let me stop right there and bring up a sobering thought. When we read about people like this in scripture, it can be easy for me and I'm sure for many of us to go, look at those bad guys. They are the villains of the story. But the reality is this is also a reflection of what my pride can do too. See, pride will drive me to seek happiness in a false God other than Jesus. For them, it was power and status. And for some of us, it is that as well. For some of us, it's seeking our fulfillment and salvation in relationships or in a substance or in a status or in this or in that. And so the reality is as much as I want to hate on these guys for doing this atrocious thing, my pride also has to reveal me that I'm capable of that too. It's a sobering thought, but one that we need to keep in mind. And so what happens next is extremely humorous to me. So this is a dramatic scene, right? This is a biblical law and order going on. And then the second, and then again, verse six, they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing Jesus. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. Now let's stop right there. This is odd. (laughs) 
So they have all this pomp and circumstance. Have you ever talked to someone and felt like they just weren't paying attention to you? That's kind of how I picture is what's going on right now. Jesus, woman caught in adultery, the laws of Jesus. Are you listening right now? Because maybe he was looking at them, but for whatever reason, after they made their stance, I'm sure like chest puffed out, very proud, it says that he bent down, maybe he sat down, and he started writing in the sand. And look at what happens next. Verse 7, when they kept questioning him, let's stop there. They're like, maybe he didn't hear us. Hey, adulterous woman, law of Moses, and he's still writing. And you know what's fascinating about this? Is that there's mystery to this. We don't know what he was writing. There's people that have theories. There's some people that think that he was writing scriptures. There's some people that think he was writing out the sins of the people that are the accusers. For all we know, he could have been playing hangman or something (laughs) while he was down there. And here's what I'm going to say. It doesn't matter because it's Jesus and he can do what he wants. And so he's writing in the sand. And again, verse 7, when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Verse 8, again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Now, what we have right there is one of the most famous scriptures in the Bible and one of the most misunderstood scriptures in the Bible. Because what happens is we often take that to go, you can't tell me I'm doing something wrong. You're a sinner, I'm a sinner, let's just live in that party. So let's understand the context of what Jesus is saying, because this is very, very important and reveals the heart of Jesus. What Jesus is not saying is that he's not saying only perfection can call out sin. Because we see so many other times in scripture where he calls us to hold each other accountable where he calls imperfect people to hold imperfect people accountable. What Jesus is also not saying is the other extreme of he wasn't minimizing her sin. He wasn't going, yeah, she did this, but you know what? It's not really a big deal. It's just sex or it's just this or it's just that. Let's just pretend like it didn't happen. That is not what's going on as well. Understand that at every point of this journey, Jesus is acknowledging her guilt. Jesus is acknowledging that she has sinned and has done something wrong. But by saying that, what Jesus is doing is he is going back to the heart of God the Father. He's reminding this mob, this angry crowd, I don't know how many of them there were, but he's reminding them going, the heart of accountability is restoration. So his question really is, what's your purpose in doing this? Do you actually have their best interest at heart? So you know what's hard as a married guy? Is that as a husband and as a wife, our calling in the Lord is to hold each other accountable. And it's sometimes hard to call out the person I love the most. It's sometimes hard to be called out by the person I love the most. But one of the reasons why I married my wife is because I knew she would. Because that's her role. And if she truly cares about the best for me, then she will call me out on my sin. As a parent, I have three awesome kids. I don't enjoy calling my kids out on their sin. I don't sit there and go, yes, I get to hold them accountable tonight. But the reason I do it is because I want them to experience something better. And so you see, Jesus lays out this beautiful heart of accountability 
That the reason why we are held accountable is not to be perfect. We're not going to be perfect on this side of heaven, but because we are called to a higher standard. And so again, Jesus is basically calling them all out. That is not your heart. Your heart is not a heart of restoration. You are doing this for the wrong reasons. And then he sat down and drew again. (laughs) And look what happens next. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Now let's paint this picture. We don't understand the significance of this, but this crowd, again, I don't know how many of them there were, but they're like, we've got the trump card. We've got you in this trap. And then boom, Jesus does what he does best and he outsmarts them. He goes back to drawing, doesn't say anything else. And it says that they started to leave one by one, pair by pair. It said that the older ones left first and then the younger ones. We don't know what that means. Maybe the older ones understood. Yeah, this guy is right. Maybe the younger ones were still prideful and tried to hold on, but he Eventually, everybody left except for the woman. And now, by herself, she is now face-to-face with Jesus. Now, I need you to emotionally connect with this woman here. She is guilty, and her guilt has been put on public spectacle. She is guilty of breaking the law of Moses. She would be considered unclean in their society, a pariah. We can't be around her. We can't touch her. We can't look at her because that would make us unclean. And she is standing in front of a rabbi, a teacher. Try to put yourself in that situation. Try to imagine physically standing before Jesus and exposed of your most disgusting sin. Exposed of your anger and bitterness. Exposed of sexual depravity. Exposed of hurts. Exposed of the substances you're into or the other addictions you carry. Go Exposed of your pride. There is no talking your way out of this. Everything you are, everything you hope nobody in your life would ever see is out in public in front of Jesus. Gosh, what would you be thinking? I don't know if it was me if I could even look him in the eye. I would be sitting there going, he's going to cast me out and he has every reason to. I chose to sin and I got called out on it and they are right and I'm guilty. And then what we see is Jesus display what repentance means. Verse 10, Jesus straightened up and he asked her, woman, where are they? Now understand that that word woman is not a derogatory term, but it's more of a fatherly acknowledgement. Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Her response, no one, sir, she said. And so as Jesus uses the word condemned, he's talking about this in a legal term. Are your accusers here to prosecute you? No, they're not. Then neither do I condemn you. Do you underline that? Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. What she expected probably was condemnation. In fact, again, if I was a lawyer just looking at this with legal terms and everything, that's exactly what she should expect and exactly what she deserves. But one of the things we often see is that Jesus does not give us what we deserve because he doesn't think like we do. 
And so what she deserved flat out was condemnation. What she received was grace. Not just a, hey, everything's all okay, but an acknowledgement, a true act of repentance that what you did was wrong, but I give you the opportunity for a new life. Because when he sent her away, go and sin no more. Go and leave your life. That is the heart of repentance. What it means to repent is that we go before Jesus with our sin exposed. Jesus sees the darkest, the disgusting, who we really are, who we hope nobody else finds out. He sees all that and yet he still offers an opportunity for a new life because the truth of the matter is I can't deal with my sin problem. You can't deal with your sin problem. Only Jesus can. When he says, go and leave your life of sin, what he is saying is he has the sovereignty as our king to heal us of our sin, and he provides the opportunity to be a brand new creation. What Jesus told that woman was go and live, not as an adulterous woman, but as a daughter of the king. And that's what repentance truly is. See, when Jesus said, go and leave your life of sin, what he was doing is go home. Come back to the presence of the Father. Be part of something bigger. Be part of your kingdom. So those are our passages, and hopefully through that, we've built kind of a bigger picture of repentance. So what I want to do briefly, with just a few minutes I've got left, is I want to take our passages, and from that, I want to pull just two truths, two implications about what repentance means in our lives. So you've got two fill-ins there in your note sheet. The first one is this. Our identity is found in Repentance. Our identity is found in repentance. Now, some of you remember, do you remember when you were a young kid? This is an illustration for this. Do you remember when you were young enough that you were completely confident in your identity? Do you remember, I see this in my own kids right now, where your definition of who you were was simple? I'm me. (laughs) And you were the decider of your life. You decided what was good, what was bad, what was awesome, what was not, and you didn't care what anyone else thought to the detriment sometimes of your parents. <laughs> do you remember when you were in that stage of confidence that you could do things like dress yourself for school and maybe you'd put on like pool floaties and clothes that don't match and a cape and your parent would go, are you sure? And you'd go, what are you talking about? I look good. <laughs> Or do you remember you could get into arguments with your friends? So me growing up, we'd get into arguments over which was the best Ninja Turtle. And clearly it's Donatello because he had a stick he hit people with. And as you go in, and they would be like, no, no, you're wrong. And nothing would sway me. I'd be like, no, it's Donatello. He's got a stick. There was a time, believe it or not, that we were the most confident people in who we were as we walked the earth. And then the nuclear bomb called puberty went off. And we often talk about the physical changes that happen in puberty, but what we don't realize is that puberty opens up a whole Pandora's box of emotional and spiritual changes. See, what happens in puberty is that we enter a state of confusion. And more, any, more than anything else, the enemy attacks us and he confuses the answer to this question, who am I? Because we went from, I'm me, that's all that matters. I don't care. To now, who am I? And are people going to like who I am? And so then what ends up happening is that we start giving into the temptation to look to our external world, the outside, to define us. 
We start going to people. We start going to substances. We start going to things or organizations or places, and we start saying, will you please tell me who I am? Will you tell me who I'm supposed to be? And we start trying to filter on these answers. Am I supposed to be, quote, part of the popular crowd? Am I supposed to be sporty? Am I supposed to be good-looking? Am I supposed to be trouble and a rebel? Am I supposed to be an addict? Am I supposed to be dating? Am I supposed to do this? Am I supposed to do that? And what sucks about that grind is maybe for a little bit we get an answer to that question and then it all changes again. And the thing, again, that we don't talk about enough when it comes to puberty is that when it confuses our identity, it doesn't just happen in junior high. This is a recurring pattern that comes back at key transitions in our life. As a longtime former youth pastor, I see this happening a lot in the middle of seventh grade. I see this happening a lot, confused identity, in 10th and 11th grade of high school. And I see that happen a lot at college age and young adults. These are key times when your life gets rocked by this question of who am I supposed to be and the temptation and the attack of the enemy is to find anything but God to answer that question for us and what happens when we do that is we allow sin to define us you know in the book of Acts when the apostle Paul talks about that he says that because of sin before Jesus my identity our identity was literally darkness the absence of light But what we find in repentance is that when we repent, it's because we acknowledge that Jesus is real. When we repent, we acknowledge that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus has come to forgive me of my sin, and he has come to restore my identity, that because of Jesus, I am no longer a child of darkness, but I am a child of light. See, this isn't in your note sheet, but one of my favorite verses, if you heard me preach, you've heard this verse come up many times. 1 John 3, chapter 1, see what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. Repentance is a beautiful act because it leads us to that truth. That is what we discover when we enter the door to go home, is we discover who we really are, and who we really are are the sons and daughters of Jesus our King. And you know what I love about this verse? It does not say you are children of God as long as you're perfect. You are children of God as long as you have stopped all that sinning. It says as long as we continue through repentance and continue to grow and embrace our identity, we are God's children. And so repentance is beautiful because of that first fill-in because it reveals our true identity, that we are God's sons and we are his daughters. So that's the first takeaway I want to leave you with. This leads me to my second point, is repentance needs to become a regular rhythm. Now, to illustrate what I mean by that, let me talk about the NFL. Any football fans in here? Like, I'm a football fan. I'm a 49er fan, so I do nothing but cry right now. (laughs) Because we're one of two winless teams right now in the NFL. Go Niners. But if you look at NFL strategy, there's a lot of strategy that goes into a defense, like going after the offense. But really, there's one rule that rules them all. Kill the quarterback. (laughs) And it's a simple rule. Because if you kill the quarterback, the team will topple. Because for the most part, the quarterback is the leader. 
The quarterback is the person that's calling the plays. The quarterback is the person that's trying to inspire confidence. No matter how well the rest of the team is playing, if the quarterback is not doing his job, the rest of the team cannot rise above that. I was reading about the Steelers today, and Ben Roethlisberger got intercepted five times. And his offense was like, we're doing the best we can, man. And even he said in an interview, maybe I don't have it anymore. And he understands this is the lead position. And so if you're a defense, it's a simple thing. Kill the quarterback and the team will fall. If you're the enemy of God, if you are the devil, it's a simple focus. If I can confuse your identity, then everything else will fall. I don't have to attack all of you. I just need to attack that one area that's going to overflow into everything else. Because if he can confuse our identity, therefore that's going to overflow into our focus. We're not going to be focused on God our Father. So we're going to be focused on finding our salvation everywhere else. We're going to be focused on what's right in front of us. We're going to be focused on the small rather than the big. And if that affects our focus, then that will overflow and affect the way we think. We're going to dwell on the wrong things. We're often going to dwell on the fact that I'm not good enough. I'm not strong enough. Or maybe the extreme prideful other side that I'm the best. I deserve to be the best. And I'm going to stop over over people. And then that thinking will overflow and affect my actions. We will choose to act towards what we think will give us life. And if we're confused about our identity, then we are going to act in a certain way to find life in darkness. But what repentance does is that it regularly reminds us of who we are, of whose we are, of how loved we are, and that through Jesus' powers, we don't have to be defined by the darkness any longer. See, one of the things I love about this rhythm is that Jesus in Matthew chapter 6, he's teaching us how to pray. And in this model of praying, he says, our God who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. So the first model is worship God, give God glory because he's awesome. And then he says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's a prayer of submission. You are king and you know better than I do. Give us this day, our daily bread. Give me what I need. Give me you and your presence. Forgive me of my debts as I forgive those who have sinned against me. And you see, temptation to choose the darkness is around me every single day. And by regularly repenting, what I'm joyfully doing is I'm being reminded by God of who I am, of how he sees me. You know, with my life group last Sunday, we actually did a time where we went to a local park and just spent about an hour or so alone with the Lord, and then we got together to talk about it. And one of the things that the Lord specifically gave me was a new prayer to say every day, Jesus, teach me to see myself the way you see me. Because the way you see me is not broken, is not panicky, is not insecure, is not nervous, is not failing, but you see me with love, power, grace. And an indicator of that is through repentance. So you know what I love about praying repentance is that when we pray, we are doing so much more than just talking to God. When we pray, we are entering his world. We're entering our home. And he reminds us of who we are. And we need that. And so what does this look like in your prayers? Well, for some of you, maybe it's saying a bold prayer. See, sometimes we keep our prayers very surface level. God, 
thank you for this day. God, thank you that I'm okay. Amen. And I'm not trying to knock that, but it's time to take that one step further. We need to acknowledge and be honest. Hey, God, you know that this X, Y, and Z is a sin in my life. You know that my pride or my lust or these substances have gotten a foothold in my life and I need your help. One of the aspects of prayer that we need to acknowledge is being honest because God is not afraid of our honesty. We may need to go before God and go, you know what? I'm sinning because I like it. I'm sinning because it makes me happy right now. But if this is against you, I need you to change the way I see this because right now I'm okay with this. For some of us, maybe we don't see a big sin right now and we need to go to God and pray, God, is there something I'm not seeing? Is there a blind spot? And each and every one of those steps is saying, God, I love you. I commit it to you and I want to see myself as you do. Because what you see is beautiful, even when I don't see it. And I want to see myself from your perspective. Not out of guilt, but out of joy. And so with that, what I want to do is I want to give you that opportunity to talk to God, to talk to your father and go in. I'm going to invite the band to come on out as they're going to sing one final song over us. And before we do, there on your no shoe, there's just one quote I love from just an incredible book. It talks about Jesus' mission and what he does. And this is specifically talking about the end of the Gospel of Matthew when Jesus tells his disciples, go and make disciples. And I love how it's put there in your note sheet. But the Lord's mission continues on long after his return to glory. He has left countless photos of himself throughout the world. You and me. Understand who you are. You are God's child and you're his reflection. He continues, attached to those images is the message of God's welcoming grace towards sinners. Whatever you have done, whatever you have become, please just come home. And that's what repentance leads us. So my prayer to you tonight is, I don't know many of your stories. Whoever you are, whatever you've done, whoever you think you are, whatever identity you've held on or the people have thrust against you, who you really are is a child of God. And if you have not come home, then make this the night you do that. Your father is calling you home. Let's pray. Father, we sang earlier that you are a good, good father. And that is so true. It's a simple song, but it's a profound one. That who you are is good. And what that means is that you take us when we're lost and you show us how to come back home. You didn't just send us a message and stay locked away in heaven, but you came down yourself. You sent your son to model for us how do we live our lives, to show us that we're valued, to die the death and our penalty for our sin, to experience hell on that cross, to rise again in victory, and to say, I have done that so that you can go home. Father, let us understand that repentance is a beautiful thing. It's not an act of guilt. It's not an act of bitterness or vengeance. It's an act of a loving father that's saying, I want you to see yourself the way I see you, with beauty, with hope, with power. That is why God gives us the Holy Spirit to live inside of us so that we always know who, always know who we are. So as we go into this time of worship, let this be the beginning of a new journey in our relationship where we embrace repentance where we acknowledge, God, I am missing the mark here, but with your power, I can change, I can grow, I can be more of your reflection. You are with me because I can't do this on my own, but with you, gosh, you're unstoppable. Sin already lost to you on the cross. My sin isn't gonna beat you, but you're gonna beat it. 
And we give you that time and we just do our business with you tonight, Lord, as we talk to you, as we repent, as we sing, as we celebrate Jesus. In your son's name, everybody said, hey, feel free to stand and worship with us.